Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching from our lead pastor, Adam Scott. Hey, good morning, Northridge. You guys doing okay today? Man, I'm so glad that you guys are here. We got a full house today, and I love that. I want you to know, okay, you clap for a full house. It's gonna lead right into what we're talking about. Listen, in the next service, I'm gonna begin my message by lecturing them about being better Christians, okay? And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tell them to be a better Christian, they need to get up and come to the 930 service, okay? Just like you guys. So that round of applause was for you guys because of your faithfulness to get here early. But let me tell you, the reason I'm gonna do that is, is because we're running out of seats in our second service. I mean, it feels full in here right now. There'll be 150 more people in the next service, okay? It's packed. We are, 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 are absolutely squeezed in, packed in like sardines. And so we're gonna tell people, look, if it works in your schedule, if you could possibly get up earlier, come to this service, open up your seat for somebody who's lost that doesn't know Jesus to come in and take that seat, that's a big deal. And we're gonna encourage them to do that. What I need from you guys is two things, okay? One, I need you to find your friends that go to the second service and apply a little bit of peer pressure, okay? Because they're only gonna listen to me so much, okay? I need you to tell them, hey, there's room on my row and I need you for me to leave that service and come to this one so that you can sit on my row with me. The second thing is this. Um, I'm not saying it's a competition between the services, okay? But if it were, y'all are losing, okay? So what I need you to do is invite more people and let them know you've got space on your row so that they can come sit with you because there is no other problem in the church I would rather be working on than the fact that we don't have enough space, okay? That's exciting. So let's, let's work together. Let's make that problem even worse um, so that even more people in this community can come to know Jesus in this place. So, hey, we're, we're in week three of a series that we're calling Dear Church, okay? And, and, and we're gonna be talking about the, the church in Pergamum today. But what we're doing throughout the series is just simply asking God to, to speak to us through the letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches. And today, the letter to Pergamum, it's actually gonna address an important, applicable thing. It's gonna talk about seating capacity in the church. And so we're, no, it doesn't do that, okay? It'd be too convenient. But it's, it's gonna help us to live as citizens of heaven while being residents of earth. Okay, let me, let me tell you a quick story before we jump into it. I went to the dentist the other day. It was the first time I've been to the dentist in 15 years. Man, that got a reaction, okay? <laughs> 15 years since I'd been to the dentist. Why did it take me so long to go back? Well, I had a bad experience, okay? More specifically, I had the kind of experience that caused me to believe that anybody who works in dentistry could play the villain of their very own Disney movie, okay? I just, I I don't wanna offend anybody who works in the teeth business, but I think you need Jesus more than the rest of us do. Okay, you attend whatever service you want to. We just wanna introduce you to Jesus. But listen, I was, I was sharing that with a sweet lady from church that works at the dentist's office, and, uh, and so she made an appointment for me. Now, since I'm not sure what evil powers Disney gave her, I decided I would keep the appointment. And I walked into that place, and I walked in kind of like I was in a sketchy neighborhood after midnight. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
I was, I was concerned, I was, I was uncomfortable, I, was, I, I, I didn't feel like I was confident or like I belonged in that place. I wanted to look like I did, but, but I felt completely out of place, uncomfortable and afraid of the doctor who I knew was waiting around the corner to attack me with fluoride and floss. And I tell you that to say this, although I looked just like everybody else in that waiting room, there was something going on inside of me that was different. Okay, why am I telling you that? Because in some ways, that describes our experience as Christians in this world. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that we're scared or that we're full of plaque, but, but there are nearly 8 billion people on this planet. And most of them are just as comfortable and confident and at ease in this world as so many of those other people were in the waiting room. But let me tell you something. Some of us, believers in Jesus, we see things that people don't see and we feel things that other people don't feel. Why? Because we know we do not belong here. This is not our home. We may be living here, but we know that we belong there. We may have a Milledgeville address, but we know that our hope is settled in eternity. Let me tell you, I, I understand this more when we worship together than I do at any other point in my life. Like coming into this place and standing, I didn't even plan on talking about this, but standing over here and worshiping with a body of believers like you guys and just, just getting into it and focusing on Jesus and knowing that we're all doing that together because we're on the same team, that feels like heaven. And it helps me realize that I'm living for something way bigger than this world. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1. It says, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Listen, a tent is a temporary dwelling place. There's not a person in the world who, who sets up a tent and says, I want to live in this place forever. What Paul says is even if our earthly tent, okay, even if our physical bodies, even if our human existence gets destroyed, even if nothing else goes our way, even if everything in the world is taken from us, we still have hope in the permanent home that's prepared for us in the presence of God. You guys are clappy today, I like it. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul describes this concept again in this way. He says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Listen, citizenship connects a person to a place of belonging. Paul, who's a, a citizen of, of Rome, he, he says, I don't claim my citizenship in Rome as the most important thing because I know that I belong to another world. And listen, so do we. Here's our sermon in a sentence. It's straightforward and it's simple, but we are citizens of heaven. I want you to look at somebody sitting next to you and say this. Say, my physical presence can't hold a candle to my spiritual reality. Listen, for those of us that belong to Jesus, we know this place is not our home. And it's one thing to say it, it's a whole different thing to embrace it and believe it and live it out in our lives. That's what we're gonna see in this letter to the church in Pergamum. Let's kick it off, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Okay, we're gonna come back to that in a minute, but it's referencing Jesus, okay? The one with the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Listen, by the first century AD, Pergamum had become known for three things, okay? Political activity, intellectual superiority, and religious fervor. Okay, none of these things in and of themselves are bad things, but, but they kind of came together to create chaos for the local church. You see, not only were the Christians in that day referred to as atheists because they didn't bow down to worship the Roman gods, but they were also accused of being subversive to government because they refused to treat the emperor as a spiritual royalty. Like that, that was kind of how things worked then. That was what Joey talked about with the imperial cult last week. But the idea was that you bow down and worship the emperor as if he were God. The Jewish people were tolerated because it represented an ancient nation, but Christianity was seen as this, as intolerant, unsubstantiated, superstitious. Okay, those were the th three things that labeled Christians at that time. And as a result, Christians were being persecuted. That's why this, these verses talk about Antipas that was one of those Christians that had been persecuted for his faith in Jesus. And so what Jesus does is he, he goes so far in describing the context that they're living in is to say that they are living where Satan himself sits on a throne. Now, this, this is an obvious reference to the imperial cult, okay, the worship of the emperor, but it goes so much further than that. You see, a, a throne signifies special authority and, and royal governance, and what Jesus does is he declares that the church in Pergamum is living under the rule and influence of Satan himself. Here's the first uh, rule or lesson that we're gonna take out of this that carries us from Pergamum all the way to Milledgeville is simply this, we are living in enemy territory. We are living in enemy territory. Like the church in Pergamum, we are living in a world that is influenced and overrun by the presence of evil. I mean, let's, let's look at the evidence, right? As, as we look around this world, it's not hard to conclude that things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. Okay, we have warring nations. How many things have we shot out of the sky this week? Like, every day we hear about something else being shot out of the sky. We've got viral illnesses that shut down our world, take lives, and ruin our economy. We've got cancer and dementia and other health problems that, that, that devastate our sense of control. We've got political strife and unrest in our education system, and we've got corruption in our government. We've got a mental health crisis that wreaks havoc on the young and old. And as we look at all this stuff and more, we can't help but notice that Satan's fingerprint is on this world. Listen, I recently read a story about a guy. We're gonna show you a picture of him right here. I'm probably gonna get his name wrong, but I'm gonna try really hard. So, Sutomu Yamaguchi, okay? I think that's his name. But let me tell you about this guy. Okay, this guy in 1945 survived the first atomic blast in Hiroshima. Okay, he was, he was spun in the air like a tornado and he, he landed face down on the ground, but, but he survived, okay, he recovered. And right after he recovered, he hopped on a train and, and he took off on that train to a place called Nagasaki and, and when he arrived there, he arrived just as the second bomb went off. And miraculously, he survived that one too. Isn't that a crazy story? Like I listen to this and I think, he's gotta be thinking, somebody's hunting me, right? Like this this can't be a coincidence. But when I read that story, I also recognize that some of us feel the same way he did. See, we feel like our life is, is just one series of explosions, like one explosion to the next one. We, we wake up, and, and sometimes this is how our day goes. We, we wake up and there's tragedy, 
Like before our feet even hit the bed, right? We lean over, we check our email, and we're like, oh no, the world's falling apart. And then we get up and we, we go about our day and we meet with a doctor. Maybe there's a diagnosis that we face that just absolutely cripples us. And, and we're dealing with the pressure of all of this. And so we start driving home and we hit a deer. You know, like it, it just happens, right? You've had a day like that before. Life is not fair. And our hearts cannot, will not, and should not be content here. Why? Because we are destined for something more. You see, our sense of justice our acknowledgement of right and wrong and our yearning for more, they all call us out of Satan's playground and into God's eternity. You see, this, this world is temporary. When it feels like the attacks just keep coming, what we need to do is we need to come back to this passage. We need to read these verses again and we need to remember that Jesus sees us, he knows what we're going through and he will reward us if we stay focused on See, we live in an enemy territory, but get this, we are citizens of heaven, all right? That's important to remember that Satan's power is not absolute, okay? He sits on the throne in this world. He wields a sword, but the scripture tells us in these first couple verses that Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In other words, he holds the ultimate power. It belongs to Jesus, and in the next couple of verses, he uses it to cut through the half-hearted attitude of the believers who are trying to split their devotion between the promises of heaven and the temptations of earth. This is how it continues, verses 14 through 15. It says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. It's not all good news, okay? There's some stuff we gotta deal with. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I said it Nicolaitans a couple weeks ago. I've now heard Nicolaitans, okay? Come back next week and see how I pronounce it. I promise you'll learn something, okay? Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, we, we don't get a lot of explanation about the teachings and practices of these various groups. But what we do learn is that the church in Pergamum, they had lost the ability to say no to the surrounding culture. See, if you remember the, the church in Ephesus, it, it tells us in the letter to that church that they had, they had stopped this false teaching. They had, they had stood their ground. They had triumphed over these groups, but the church in Pergamum was the opposite. They had forgotten how to stand firm against temptation and evil. There was no longer anything about them that set them apart from the world. You see, the church in Pergamum, they're not just living in the world, they're students of the world. With one small decision after another, they had inched their way into idolatry and, and sexual immorality and so much more. Things that opposed God had shifted from the culture and they had found their way at home in the church. And if they wanted to honor Jesus, and if they wanted to avoid the consequences of their actions, they would need to repent. They would need to turn away from the things of this world. They would need to draw a hard line in the sand. Here's the second lesson that carries us from Pergamum all the way to Milledgeville. Compromise and conformity lead to collapse. Compromise and conformity lead to collapse. Listen, this is so important. 
Okay, because nobody sets out to destroy their marriage by having an affair. Nobody sets out to do that. It happens when pornography, lust, and unresolved conflict open the door for lingering opportunities. Nobody sets out to become addicted to alcohol or other substances. It happens when habits are formed, when warning signs are ignored, and when walls are built up to keep people out. Nobody sets out to abandon their faith. It happens when gathering with other believers is not a priority, when scripture is ignored, and when sin is downplayed. Listen, destruction is not a single action. It is a series of compromises. You see, this world and and the one who sits on the throne of it wants nothing more than for you and I, believers in Jesus, to walk away from Jesus and abandon him and everything he has to offer. Let me tell you, they'll settle for one single compromise that threatens the integrity of the rock that our relationship with Jesus is built on. When I was in high school, we used to hang out in the parking lot after school and I remember there was, there was one time where a guy told me, he said, I bet you a dollar you can't hold on to the back of my truck while I drive 20 miles per hour through the parking lot. <laughs> well, all I heard was, you can't do it. So I decided I would do it. See, I've done some research since then. Did you know the average adult male can run about eight miles per hour, okay? The average person who is running for their life, like not running for sport, but a dentist is chasing you, like you are running for your life, Okay, you can go about 12 miles per hour. Okay, the average athlete, like somebody who works at this stuff, they can run about 14 to 17 miles per hour. Okay, I didn't know any of this. All I knew was that somebody told me, I bet you can't, and so I said, sign me up. Okay, and I grabbed the back of his little Ford Ranger, and he started taking off, and I did fine. I held on, I was moving, I was running, I was giving it all I had, and then all of a sudden, he started to speed up, okay? And it got harder and harder and more difficult. And all of a sudden, I reached a point where I'm telling you, you need to take my word because you should not try this, okay? There was a point where I realized I physically could not let go of the truck because I was going so fast and my legs were moving so quick that if I let go, the momentum would have sent me face planting into the concrete. I thought my life was over as he reached the speed of what felt like 65 or 70 miles per hour. Hey, it was a scary moment, but it built an intensity one mile per hour at a time. Listen, sin is like that. It starts off slow, and it lets us feel like we're in control, but gradually, one mile per hour at a time, it takes over until eventually letting go no longer feels like an option. Listen, if we let temptation live among us, it will gradually overcome us. I recently read a poll, and it suggested that evangelicalism in America is at an all-time high. In other words, it said that the number of people who claim to be Christ followers is higher than it's ever been before, but it also said this, it has seldom had less effect on society than at any time in history. In other words, when you look out at all the Christians in this country, it's hard to tell them apart from the non-Christians by the way they live by the attitude that they have, by the way they interact with one another. Listen, if we want to honor Jesus, if we want to avoid the consequences of our actions, we've got to repent. We've got to draw a hard line in the sand. 
We've got to take our hands off the things that lead to destruction and cling to the one who promises life. See, compromise and conformity lead to collapse, but we've got to live like we are citizens of heaven. Amen? Amen. All right, in the final verse of this letter, Jesus reveals what will happen if we take this seriously. Like if we hear all this and we embrace it, we say, I'm in, Jesus, sign me up. Hard line in the sand, I'm living for you. I wanna be a citizen of heaven. He says, let me go ahead and spell it out for you so you know exactly what's coming. He says this in verse 17. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, now Jesus promises two rewards in the form of metaphors here, and, and this is for the believers who refuse to compromise, the ones who live for heaven while they're still on earth, and the first one is hidden manna. Okay, now if you're not real familiar with the Bible, you probably don't know this, but in the Old Testament, manna was a, a food that was provided supernaturally from heaven for God's people. And the implication here is that Jesus, if we live for him, will provide spiritual food from heaven for those that don't take their eyes off of him. But he goes on even farther and he talks about a white stone with, with a new name on it. It was common for victors in that day, uh, victors of games to use stones as admission tickets into feasts. Okay, the implication of this is that Jesus will provide entrance into a heavenly feast for the believers that achieve victory over the temptations of the world. Okay, here's the third truth that we pull out of this. It applies to Pergamum, but it applies to us as well. Satisfaction and contentment is found in Jesus. You see, we, we can chase satisfaction from anything and everything this world has to offer. We can chase it with, with materialism. We can, we can chase it with sexuality or popularity or success. You fill in the blank for you but the one who can provide for the deepest desires of our heart is Jesus Christ. And he says, if, if you'll take your eyes off of those things that are gonna leave you empty, that are not gonna fill you up, that are gonna leave you wanting more, and you turn your eyes and your attention to me, I promise that I will fill you up in a way that is unmatched by anything else in this world. Which leads me to ask this question of you and me, what are we living for? And how is it working out for us? You see, we're all born with this emptiness in our heart. And as long as we're living like this place is all there is, we will never find an adequate solution. But once we realize that the things in this world will always let us down, then we're free to embrace the one who will always fill us up. The greater our intimacy is with Jesus the greater the contentment in our heart. We will never find satisfaction in the things of this world because we are citizens of heaven. So let me end with one more illustration. Okay, I ordered a, a table for my dining room, a custom-made table. Okay, it was a local guy who was building it. And I, I measured out where I wanted that table to go because he said, I can make it any size you want. Anything you want, I can make it work. So I measured it from the window and I measured it under the light and I'm kind of playing through. I'm like, hey kids, come over here. Okay, they're about this wide. Like I'm, I'm taking all the measurements. So I make sure I get exactly what I want, okay? And we've had that table for, I don't know, three years now or something like that. But I want you to imagine he brought me that table and, and he, he set it up and it didn't fit in my dining room. 
okay? Now, what would that have said, other than the fact that I'm terrible with measurements? That would probably suggest that that table doesn't belong in my dining room. That's not the one that was built for me because the one that was built for me, I painstakingly made sure it was gonna fit exactly the way I wanted it to. Listen, in our lives, sometimes it feels like we don't fit. It feels like we don't fit in this world. What that should tell us is that we weren't made for this world. This isn't the place we belong. That should cause us to run towards Jesus and say, I want to embrace heaven. See, when it feels like chaos has you in its crosshairs, when it feels like every compromise makes you feel less and less whole, when you're chasing and can't find satisfaction and contentment, and let that be a surefire sign that you were made for another world. We are residents of earth, but we are citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that all of those times that I feel like I don't fit, all of those times that I feel like something's missing, all those times that I feel like I'm out of line with who I'm supposed to be and, and what I'm supposed to do, God, that all of those things are just signs that point me towards you. God, I thank you that over and over throughout my life, you've shown me how empty the things of this world are so that I can embrace how incredibly fulfilling you are. God, I pray that we as a church can embrace that. I pray that we can stop falling for the lies that, that find themselves on every TV commercial and, and every ad and, and all the things that the world promotes that are going to make us happy and we can just throw it all to the side and say, Jesus, I want, I want you. More than anything else, I want you. I want to sit in your presence every day. I want you to fill me up. I want your purpose to get me out of bed in the morning. I want to live my life in a way that says, I want heaven to meet earth through me in this season because I believe that I was made for something more. God, help us to live that way and reinforce that truth in our, in our lives every single day as we make decisions, small decisions to pursue you over the things of this world. God, I pray that you will press it upon us to understand that God, the more we do that, the deeper our intimacy grows with you and the deeper the satisfaction in our heart becomes. God, help us to live for you. There's nothing else we want more. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.